I was a kid growing up in Texas, I often heard stories about what life was like in the South in the 1800s. Stories about King Cotton, the Civil War, and the awful Yankees. I suppose I had a general sense of slavery in the South, probably because my mom loved the fantasy society shown in movies like Gone with the Wind, and because of road trips we took to Louisiana and Mississippi. But the physical results of slavery that we actually saw, such as the large plantation homes, were touristy places. The suffering that had happened there, the reality that the beauty existed only because of human slavery, was shoved to the background and easily ignored. My understanding of Texas history meant cowboys, cattle drives, the frontier, and oil. Whether slavery even existed in Texas was so glossed over in school that I wasn't really even aware of it. Slavery, I supposed, was something that had existed, but only in the Deep South, which Texas certainly wasn't a part of. But in reality, what role, if any, did slavery play in Texas? How many people actually were enslaved here? Did slavery matter to the Texas economy? And should it matter to Texans now? These are the questions that we'll explore throughout this podcast series. My name is Lance Cooper. I'm a historian and attorney, and these are some of the issues that I've spent years trying to understand. What I've learned from my research has transformed my understanding of my home state, and I'd like to share what I've learned about Texas and slavery with you. Over the years, when I've talked to people about slavery in Texas, again and again, they are surprised by what they hear which suggests to me that a great many folks, perhaps even you, have missed out on one of the most compelling chapters in our state's history. And if you've heard anything about this story, I suspect that you've heard only one side of it. So come with me and let's look together at the other side, the true story of slavery in Texas. Just think about the other side, the other side, the other side. I was born in Grand Bluff in Mississippi on old Mama Carlton's plantation, and I was stole from my folks when I was a little gal. Us kids played in the big road there in Mississippi. One day, me and another gal was playing up and down the road, and three white men came along in a wagon. They grabs us up and puts us in the wagon, covered us with quilts. I hollers and yells. One of the men says, shut up, or I'll kill you. Those are the words of Frances Black, an enslaved woman who was stolen from a Mississippi plantation by slave traffickers in the 1850s. Black was spirited away to the slave markets of New Orleans before being taken to Jefferson, Texas, where she lived in bondage until the end of the Civil War. We know Frances's story because of a 1930s federal program that sent interviewers across the country to find and talk to Americans who had been enslaved. The government compiled hundreds of these interviews. Many interviews were conducted with formerly enslaved Texans and in future episodes, you'll hear more of these voices. Years ago, after I finished law school and had practiced law for several years, I returned to graduate school to study legal history. 
I had always been interested in history, but as when I was a kid growing up in rural central Texas, I began graduate school with little knowledge about slavery or why it even mattered to my state's history. But in the course of my studies and research, I kept bumping into old legal cases involving enslaved Texans. Cases brought in Texas courts about sharply contested disputes. For example, arguments about the value of a murdered slave. Arguments about enslaved workers rented out like pieces of farm equipment by wealthy farmers to less affluent farmers. Disputes over medical bills for services rendered to injured slaves. Case after case after case. Through this process, my eyes began to open to the possibility that With this much legal wrangling going on, slavery probably mattered a lot to the Texas economy, and by extension, to Texas society in general. This led me to wonder why I had not learned this in school. Maybe I was just a bad student, or perhaps there were other reasons. I suspect that the fact that I'm white, and my small hometown was mostly white, probably contributed to the surface-level gone-with-the-wind type of understanding I had of slavery. If we look back in time to the years following the Civil War and on into the 20th century, what were Texas schools teaching kids about slavery? And what were scholars in Texas saying about how significant slavery was to the state? So let's go back to the early 1900s. At that time, the leading scholar of Texas history was a fellow named Eugene Barker at the University of Texas. Professor Barker's work on the state's history was so influential that his scholarship largely set the tone for our understanding of Texas history for decades to come. In fact, most of his work is still respected by historians. But what was his verdict on slavery? Well, he declared that slavery played virtually no role in Texas's independence from Mexico, and he went on to downplay the role of slavery in the years following independence. So, Hold that thought for a moment. After I finished my graduate studies, I worked for years in publishing, some law books, but mostly on Texas and U.S. history textbooks. From that experience, I know that school texts tend to reflect the political beliefs that are dominant in any particular market. It's also true that what historians say about a given topic influences what kids study. That's the case in Texas as in any other state. So, in a conservative state like Texas, When Professor Barker largely bypassed slavery, it was only natural that school textbook publishers would follow suit. This is not to overstate Professor Barker's influence, but his work on this topic dovetailed perfectly with a larger movement that was afoot across the South, the development of the Lost Cause. This was a movement from the late 1800s to the early 1900s across the South to, among other goals, diminish the importance of slavery in Southern history and instead emphasize a fabricated narrative that boosted white supremacy and supported the flourishing of Jim Crow laws. It was during this period, for example, that statues dedicated to the Confederacy cropped up in county squares across Texas. And you know the kind of statues I'm talking about. I'm sure you've seen them. Another crucial aspect of this propaganda campaign was the whitewash of Texas history textbooks by groups such as the United Daughters of the Confederacy. In short, it was a perfect little storm of white supremacy with no counterpoint provided by academia.
Is this still the case? Well, you and I, dear listener, benefit from the work of modern historians in assessing slavery's proper role in Texas history. When historians look back to try to understand the past, they follow different streams of information, such as diaries, letters, tax records, economic data, census data, and so on. This allows them to create an accurate picture of what occurred at any given period. Historians now know that Francis Black's experience, that of being brought west to Texas from an older region of the South, was an increasingly common one in the mid-1800s. It was common because at that time, cotton prices were on the rise, and Texas, with its vast lands available for settlement, was a land of opportunity for the scores of white settlers who streamed to the region. Frances was simply swept up, without any choice, in this migration. She landed in Jefferson, which is in Marion County in East Texas. From looking at census records, we know that in 1860, the enslaved population of Marion County made up more than half of the county's total population. In this respect, Marion County was not unusual in Texas. By the time Francis arrived here, human slavery had been big business for some time, and it continued to grow rapidly well into the Civil War. According to census data, almost 60,000 people lived in bondage in Texas in 1850. Around 150,000 white people lived in Texas then, which means that almost every third person was enslaved. Only 10 years later, the number of enslaved Texans had tripled to around 180,000. Now, this represented a faster rate of growth than the state's white population. Clearly, there was money to be made in Texas, and human slaves made that possible. This growth also reflected an enormous financial commitment to the institution of slavery. In 1858, only a few years before the Civil War, a writer with an Austin newspaper, the Texas State Gazette, claimed that, quote, until we reach somewhere in the vicinity of two million slaves, it is evident that such a thing as too many slaves in Texas is an absurdity. According to the writer, the best way to reach such numbers was by reopening the African slave trade, something that had been banned in 1808. This might sound crazy or far-fetched to modern ears, but this incredible suggestion was a common view in Texas and the rest of the South. There was just so much money to be made. In fact, sales of enslaved people boomed right through the Civil War. Houston, for instance, was a major market for sales. In 1862, the city's top slave-trading firm, Sidnor's Auction House, declared that it, quote, could not keep Negroes in stock, unquote, and gave notice of a sale in which it expected prices to reach $1,400 to $2,000 per enslaved person. In today's terms, that would be roughly $35,000 to $50,000. The next year, news of the Emancipation Proclamation seemed to actually spur a seller's market there. One of the local newspapers noted that a 24-year-old man fetched more than $3,000 and a woman and three small children brought almost $5,000. And many people were being sold. In the span of a week in December, two auction houses each publicized sales of more than 100 people. The first book-length study of slavery in Texas did not arrive until 1989. It was written by Randolph Campbell, a historian at the University of North Texas in Denton. Professor Campbell had wondered whether Texas before the Civil War 
had more in common with the American Southwest or with the American South. In other words, was Texas at that time more about cowboys, raising cattle, and so on, or was it a state with an economy based on large-scale agriculture that depended on human slavery? To find out, Professor Campbell combed through tax records, estate records, census data, and many other sources. The picture that emerged from his research made him realize that Texas was firmly a member of the Old South. It was a true southern state with an economy that was as solidly rooted in human slavery as other southern states. Which is why he titled his book, An Empire for Slavery, The Peculiar Institution in Texas. That was a fitting title because the state's leadership had long promoted Texas as an empire in the making, one built on slavery. In short, cotton production had turned Texas into an extension of the American South. I had the good fortune of having Dr. Campbell serve as my thesis advisor while I was at UNT. Professor Campbell always urged his historians in training to focus on solid, reliable data. He sometimes repeated the Watergate-era phrase, follow the money, which was exactly what he had done in An Empire for Slavery. And in doing this, he built a more complete and reliable picture of what slavery looked like in the Lone Star State. So, in that spirit, if we follow the money... What sort of specific information can we learn? In another work focused on wealth and political power in Texas, Professor Campbell and another University of North Texas professor, Richard Lowe, showed that census and tax records in pre-war Texas reveal that roughly one-third of the state's farmers owned enslaved workers. But this relatively small percentage of farmers controlled two-thirds of the improved acreage. This gave them control of about 90% of the state's cotton production. And cotton was, by far, the most valuable cash crop in Texas. Texas also offered room for slavery to grow. As slavery spread across just the eastern and central regions of Texas, it soon covered an area almost as large as Alabama and Mississippi combined. The data about wealth in Texas aligned with broader patterns of wealth across the South. In fact, On the cusp of the Civil War, the Mississippi Valley was home to more millionaires per capita than any other region of the United States. That wealth throughout Texas and the rest of the South became the foundation of wealth for generations of white Southern families. We'll talk more about this wealth in a later episode. But it wasn't just that slavery mattered economically. Texas was a true slave society a society in which slavery profoundly affected social, cultural, legal, and familial relationships. Thousands of Texans today are descended from people who were enslaved here or who owned other Texans. And only two generations, just two, separate us from Texans who had no freedom, no legal rights, and no control over their own bodies. Francis Black's experience sums this up. When she arrived in New Orleans, the men who stole her cut her hair, thinking they could get more money by passing her off as a boy. But... I told them men what looks at me. The men cut my hair off and stole me. The man what cut my hair off cursed me, said if I didn't hush, he'd kill me. But he couldn't sell us at New Orleans. Took us to Jefferson. Even with no legal rights, Frances Black's humanity shines through in her testimony. Come with me on this journey, and that's what you'll see again and again among enslaved Texans. As with Francis Black, 
The words of many Texans who survived slavery are preserved in interviews conducted long ago, but these priceless sources were then shelved in archives and forgotten by the public. In this podcast, we'll open these interviews and let enslaved Texans speak for themselves. We'll learn how and why American slavery came to Texas, what life was like for enslaved Texans, and how their work built the Texas economy. What you learn will affect your understanding of events happening in Texas today. The stories you'll hear are fascinating, heartrending, sometimes funny, and often full of drama. The enslaved Texans you'll meet have things to teach us that we cannot learn anywhere else. Their stories transcend time and speak to us if we're willing to listen. That's why I created this podcast, and that's why you'll want to hear it. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll join me next time on The Other Side of the Story. Thank you.